The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello, and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got, uh, after a little hiatus, as he was off doing valuable things, I'll say, um, Jim's joining me again on the EDU show. Last week was uh, solo on my part, if you listened in. Did a little Social Security EDU last week. Uh, Jim's back with us today, and he's bringing uh, some um, updated, uh, embellished, uh, new information on uh, uh, factors to be concerned with in the SECURE Act, SECURE 2.0 in particular. And so we'll call this show, I guess, Secure 2.0 Updates and Clarifications, maybe. So there's going to be a number of things. We'll kind of lay out some basics uh, that uh, most people should realize. We'll talk about some of the issues that are resolved and unresolved. There's there's still outstanding issues that the IRS is going to chime in on. And then um, maybe talk about a few things that, that uh, are, are not in the SECURE Act, but are kind of related topics. So, um, Jim... Uh, is available shortly as soon as he uh, gets back in the room, and uh, as soon as he unmutes himself, unmutes himself. Nice. Yeah, there we go. So he is remote, so I can't give him hand signals or gestures. So, um, but how not is it? Not only am I remote, I'm not even in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I'm in Massachusetts you're, right now. You're way remote, right? I'm, I'm very remote. I'm mm-hmm. in my mom's house. Yeah. Uh, in her little uh, office room, if you will, which used to be my bedroom, by the way, when oh. I visited. So does it feel very homey in there? And you know, well, I never really got to enjoy it as my bedroom. My mom and sister built a new house together, and this was supposed to be my quote unquote bedroom when I came and visited. So she had a fold out. Oh, so this isn't your childhood house. bedroom. No, 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 no. no. This house was just built a few years ago. Anyway, she turned out she didn't like the fold-out couch, so they got rid of it, which in turn got rid of my bed. So (laughs) even though I spend most of the days with my mom, I will go to my sister's house, which is kind of connected to this one. Uh, So I'll walk through the garage into her house, and I sleep in one of her spare bedrooms. Oh. 
but it works perfect because my mom got rid of the couch and put a desk in. So I can uh, so you have sit a, at the desk. So you have a full family compound there, kind of like the Kennedys. It, it is a compound, and, and mom likes it because my sister is nearby, mm-hmm. and my sister is a former RN, so mom feels comfortable knowing my sister's here. Something happens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when I'm here, again, I pretty much am home at her place, but I will migrate to my sister's place to actually sleep. So it's kind of Kennebunkport. Gym yeah, style. but we don't have the cachet of the Kennedys. People aren't driving by and looking at our little compound here in Rochester, Mass. Uh, we certainly don't have the cachet of Hyannis and yeah. the Kennedy compound. But uh, perhaps in time we will, but right now we do not. Uh, the most important question, though, is are you walking distance from Chowda? No, but every place has Chowda. You have to. Actually, no, technically, yes. Um, because the closest place is probably about two miles away. And I haven't had an opportunity to jolk, which is half jog, half walk, Mm -hmm. for those who don't know. I haven't had the opportunity to jolk very much, but I did yesterday go. It was one of the few days where uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, Chris, but out here, water actually falls from the sky. And quite a bit of water has been falling from the sky while I've been out here which made the grass very, very green, mm. but made my ability to go outside and jog once a day uh, quite difficult. Mm. But my point is I go about four miles when I, quote, unquote, jolt, uh, jog and walk, and the nearest restaurant is two miles away, and that restaurant does have chowder. Oh, well, that's a perfect break point in, in your walk. <laughs> yes, stop my, mm-hmm. my jog and mm-hmm. have go some eat chowder. some mm-hmm. cream-filled clam chowder mm-hmm. and start trying to jog home. Maybe, know. wait, maybe jog, jog on the way there and then walk back. That'll, that'll <laughs> be how you can split it up, right? Yes, exactly. Half jog, <laughs> half walk. Okay. But you know, it's been nice to be home, but I leave tomorrow uh, for the last leg of this journey, and I fly out to Kansas City, folks. I'll be in... KC, well, you all don't know what tomorrow is. Today is May 2nd, Tuesday. By the time you're listening to this, uh, it releases on Wednesday, May 3rd, which is the day that I will be flying out of Mass and flying to Kansas City, where I'll spend uh, the next two days, Thursday and Friday, uh, the 4th and 5th, at the Kansas City Estate Planning Council meeting and uh, hang with a bunch of estate planning attorneys and try to learn something about estate planning that I didn't know, which is not easy, uh, hard to do, Chris, because I don't know much about estate planning at all, which is one of the reasons that I like go into these meetings. And then I'll be flying back to California, not California, where do I live? Colorado. Flying back to Colorado uh, on Saturday, May 6th. So quick trip, took about two weeks and it's coming to a close. How are things there in the office uh, without me and how are things in Colorado? Uh, pretty smooth, fair, pretty spring-like here, so I think you'll enjoy it when you get back. We have had, well, it's been a few days since any of that rain stuff you talk about. We did have a little rain a, a few days ago, though. Grass is greening up, so you'll probably have some mowing to do when you get home. So yeah. That's okay. And the, the one thing I can say about Colorado is you, at least I, don't have to mow uh, every single week like you do here. Um, I know once, once the grass really starts to slow down by mid June, I can get away with mowing sometimes once or twice a month, not necessarily every week, mm-hmm. unless you irrigate your grass incessantly, which I don't do. I, 
I have limited water, folks. The, the town that I live in greatly limits my ability to water. So I sacrifice lawn in an effort to grow my veggie garden. Mm-hmm. Now, what about you? Do you water your grass? We do. We do. But luckily, we're on a water district that has very, very old water rights. So we have some relatively cheap water, and it's in plentiful supply. Something I don't have in Bertha. I don't know what water Bertha has, but they greatly limit my ability to water my garden. Okay. Anyways, don't want to bore everybody, but just gave you a little bit of an update on what's new with Chris and I. Uh, Today... Because I was at the Ed Slot program in Washington, D.C. Uh, just a few days ago, as a matter of fact. And uh, we did two days of study. Most of it, when the Ed Slot group was teaching, uh, involved the SECURE Act. I can't say all of it, but I'd say about 70% of what the Ed Slot group taught us was the SECURE Act. And I have to specify the Ed Slot group because there were other instructors there who did some estate planning discussions with us, uh, as well as some IRA and tax planning strategy discussions, as well as someone else who was uh, a big proponent of life insurance. So there was all different types of presenters there that also taught us. But when the Ed Slot group was teaching us, I would say 70, 80% of what they went over was Secure Act 2. So we're going to do a series of EDU shows at least going through what the Ed Slot group reviewed with us initially, the overriding takeaway, Chris, and I want all listeners to know this, is that much of what Secure is supposed to do, uh, even though it's been stated that, hey, this is what you're going to be able to do, there's precious little guidance on how many of the provisions will actually be done. And that was one of the overriding takeaways. And rather than them trying to guess how the IRS is going to issue guidance and interpret some of the rules, they feel the the more prudent thing is to wait for the IRS to issue their guidance. And as you'll see when we go through this, some of the things that I'll be, be mentioning will be followed with there's no clear guidance yet on how this is going to be done. Uh, You often see that, folks, when uh, laws are rushed through like this one was towards the end of the year, which Congress is is notorious for doing. Uh, In fact, there are some, I forget where it is in the book. I'll I'll find it as we go through. But there's some language in there that pretty much uh, bars certain people from doing Roth conversions. Clearly an oversight and a mistake and clearly something that will be fixed but something that Ed uh, found quite ironic and and pointed out to us that some of the language that was supposed to be scratched from the IRC, the internal revenue code, uh, according to secure act would, would uh, mistakenly strike the ability of some people to do Roth conversions. So it's, it's a bill full of those kind of gotchas that really needs to be cleaned up. And I would suspect the IRS is working diligently over time to get this cleared up and start giving us guidance, especially because many, many of the provisions don't take place until 2024 or after. And they need to start issuing some guidance on what's coming, let alone guidance on what's already here. 
So that that was one of the more overriding takeaways, Chris, I think you could say, that uh, he shared with us, which comes to you and I, at least, as no big surprise. Uh, We have been saying to our listeners for a while that there's no clear guidance, Uh, even though I hadn't had a chance yet to study under the the slot group. um, I have been reading repeatedly, and you may have as well, Chris, from other authors and other talking heads that there's no clear guidance on many, many of these provisions. I think you would agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty common out there as people are, you know, like us that are trying to plan for the future. Um, Having such uncertainty is a challenge. So we're always looking for, have they said anything yet? Have they said anything yet? You know, have they they issued anything on this yet? Um, So it's top of mind for a ton of people in our industry. Okay. So a couple of things. Today's uh, show, if you will, folks, is going to be kind of the precursor. Depending on how quickly we get through my precursor notes, uh, we may jump into some of the provisions of the SECURE Act. But the precursor I found very, very interesting, and it's how the slot group began by teaching us. They said, hey, before we jump into the meat and potatoes, here are a couple of things for you to consider, for you to know, for you to understand. So really what I'm doing is I'm going through my notes. I took written notes. Y'all laugh, but Ed, Ed is like me, and he still provides a very thick printed and bound book. Uh, the thing is several hundred pages. It's not all just secure, folks, but lots and lots of info. Ed insists. Ed is going to be 70 years old. He's from that generation. He insists on it being paper. He does also give us the digital version, but I prefer the paper one in front of me. So I have lots of handwritten notes, but I also had the techie pot of Jim. I have my iPad where I was typing specific notes as well of things that I I want to remember. So I'm literally going through my notes, the book that Ed gave, the copious amounts of handwritten notes, which if you saw my handwriting post stroke, you're going to wonder how I can read what I wrote. And quite honestly, folks, I sometimes wonder what it is I wrote because I, I, I can't understand my handwriting all the time. But I've got handwritten notes and then typed notes. And I think the best thing, Chris, is for me to go through this in the order that it was reviewed with us. And I'm just going to talk to you mostly in Ed's words. A lot of what I'm going to be giving you is regurgitating what what he told us, but I'll also share my own commentary. And and Chris, you can share your own commentary as well, just like everybody there shared commentary. And uh, there was a lot of back and forth and back and forth. And and you, would, I just have to make mention of this, Chris, because I know you weren't there. On the last day we were there, literally the last hour, hour and a half, Uh, We had got off secure uh, by the uh, afternoon of the last day we were there. And we were talking about other things. Uh, Somehow, Culax came up for discussion. And oh, oh my God, did it turn into this room of 400 people all shouting out their own interpretation and understanding of what Culax were? I wanted to raise my hand. I didn't. I I sat there and shut up because if I got on, I would have never stopped. We'd still be there. And... (laughs) Just tell people, you know, we did a whole show, series of shows on Culex, but <laughs> there was a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding of, of Culex. Now, the Ed Slot Group knows the tax rules around them. They didn't know the operational rules. 
how to open them, how to move them. And, and one of the unique things, oh, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'll go down it another time, I, I guess. But there was a really good question brought up on if a QLAC, once annuitized, and the in, which the initial purchase of QLAC is annuitized, once the income begins, can you direct the QLAC payment as a QCD to a charity? And there was no overriding consensus. So everybody was taking sides. Yes, no, yes, no. Um, Ed felt yes. He couldn't see why because the law was uh, kind of specific that a QLAC, the money coming out, is the required minimum distribution for that QLAC, QLAC account. But others were arguing the QLAC isn't technically an IRA anymore. It's a QLAC. And I disagree. I, right. I, my opinion was, no, it's an IRA with a QLAC in it. It's not, a Q, it's not an annuity that absorbed your IRA. It's an IRA that is investing in an annuity that just happens to be a QLAC. Yeah. It was an interesting conversation. But the general consensus, folks, their own takeaway is that an annuitized IRA after you hit 70 and a half, even though there is absolutely no guidance from the IRS on this, the only guidance we do have is what, Chris? An annuitized IRA, the distribution is considered what? It's considered the RMD for that account and that account alone. Exactly. exactly. And a QCD, so long as it's not greater than $100,000 and now under Secure 2, as you'll see, that will be indexed for inflation. The RMD can be used as the qualified charitable uh, distribution, correct? True. True. So the general consensus of Ed was that the distribution of a QLAX RMD, which is the income benefit, mm -hmm. could be sent to a charity as a, a QCD. QCD. Mm -hmm. The and difficulty being... Yeah the payment cannot go to you first. True. And I felt that's what's going to cause the issue. Yeah, I think Getting so Getting a hold of the insurance company and saying, hey, send all or a portion of my payment to this charity and withhold no taxes. Send the remaining to me. Good luck trying to get an insurance company to do that. I think a QLAC yeah. could be sent as an RMD but you're never going to be able to get an insurance company to pull it off. Anyways, folks, that gives you a little example that in the EdSlot group, there is that back and forth in the group. And that was very valuable. People were sharing a lot of their interpretation of secure as well. And this technically isn't a secure issue. I, I concede that. But it just kind of gives you a little bit of insight that QLEX have been around, folks, since 2015, they were first envisioned by the Department of Treasury in 2010. And here we still don't have clear guidance on if the payment from a QLAC could be used as a QCD. It just shows you a lot of what is out there is open to interpretation. And secure is no uh, different. There are some things that are pretty known and other things that are just still up in the air. Anyways, just figured I'd share a little bit of that. All right. So before we begin, one of the first things they began with, Chris, is to say, hey, 
before we even get into secure, let's just get into what's not even insecure. So just get it out of your heads. They don't even address it at all insecure. And I thought that is a good place to begin. What do you think? Perfect. All right. So let's look at some of this. The SECURE Act does not, does not impact backdoor Roth IRAs at all. So as far as Ed Slot is concerned, the backdoor Roth can continue. SECURE does not go after and close that quote-unquote loophole that Chris and I firmly believe is really not a loophole because uh, the Tax Cuts and Job Act from 2017, specifically mentioned, not in the act itself, but in the interpretation, the the congressional interpretation of the act, specifically mentioned backdoor Roths and pretty much graced them as being okay. Do you want to explain what a backdoor Roth is in case someone is new or or not? I can do that. So a backdoor Roth, and let's be very clear, this is a backdoor Roth contribution is the proper title, in my opinion, for this technique, because there's no reason to go through the back door to do a conversion because conversions are allowed for everyone at this point. So a backdoor Roth contribution is a technique that happens to include a conversion as one of the steps that allows you to sneak in the back door with a contribution when you are barred from going through the front door for a contribution, maybe you uh, are past the phase out for earnings or what have you. you, you cannot put a Roth contribution in directly to your IRA, but instead you're able to use a technique called the backdoor Roth contribution, which involves first making a contribution to an IRA, but not deducting it as you would generally do in a traditional IRA what we would call an after-tax contribution to your traditional IRA. Then subsequently, convert that after-tax dollars that are in that traditional IRA to a Roth. There is no income limitation on doing those two steps. So it allows you to accomplish, in essence, a Roth contribution, but sneaking in through the back door in that two-step process. Now, there's nuances to this. It only works really effectively if you have a an empty IRA that you're doing this in. Um, or, you know, and when I say empty IRA, keep in mind that the IRS considers all your IRAs one big IRA. So uh, I won't go any further down that, but just be aware there's some there's some issues that might make this not work as well for some people as it otherwise might seem to. But that's the essence of a backdoor Roth contribution. Perfect. And again, folks, the general takeaway, they're still okay. And Chris, you and I have always felt they're okay. It's, it, but people in our industry, some very, very bright talking heads in our industry, one who shall remain nameless, but forgets more in one day than I will ever know, uh, for years has, has cautioned against doing the back door. Uh, ever since uh, the uh, Congress came out and, and again, didn't specifically say they were okay, but hinted strongly they would. And then the IRS did the same. Uh, We feel without a doubt backdoor Roths uh, are allowable and do not uh, contradict uh, the step doctrine rule. 
which says if you do a series of steps to ultimately complete something that you couldn't have done in one step, uh, we're not going to allow it. But uh, our takeaway is the back door is, is fine. That's our belief. You can disagree or agree with us. Secure does not impact it. Secure also did not change. I know we talked about QCDs, but I want to clarify. Secure Act did not change qualified charitable distribution age. Secure 2, we're talking. There was thoughts that after Secure 1 started to extend required minimum distribution age from 70 and a half to 73, and then Secure, uh, no, it was 70 and a half, yeah, 70 and a half to, what was Secure 1? It was 70 and a half to, was it 72 or 73? I can't even remember Se- now. 70 and a I half just, to 72. And then okay. there's this next step to 73. And then. Which is now, right. And then 75. And then 75 um, eventually, yes. So remember, folks, there was Secure One just last year, which took it from 70 and a half to 72. And then Secure Two, which took effect January 1st of this year, which got rid so 72 was very short lived. Uh, and then it was extended to 73, and then in 10 years, it would be extended to 75. What was never changed was the ability for somebody at 70 and a half to do a qualified charitable distribution. They never changed that. So that's something else that hasn't changed. It still remains 70 and a half, even though your RMDs have been pushed to 73, and for many people, 75. There is also there was talk that the IRS or Congress was going to put income limitations back on Roth conversions There's strong belief that they're going to go after Roths and not allow them or tax them or restrict them in some way, shape or form. Uh, whether or not that happens, who knows? Uh, a consensus at the Ed Slot Group, for those who want a little inside view, is that Roths will actually be expanded or the ability to, to put money in Roths or limiting you to only using Roths uh, may be expanded because it's such a money maker for the government right now because all the money that you are deferring, they can tax now and they need money now to make it look like they're fiscally responsible, even though everybody knows Congress and this government spends money like drunk sales on shore leave. So there's no constraining or no bringing back, Chris, the income limits on Roth conversions, which, as you know, Chris, when Roths first came out, if you were a married couple earning more than how much, do you remember? And you could not do a conversion. And this was for a married couple, yeah. folks. Do you remember what that was? It was $100,000. $100,000. If you earned more than $100,000, you couldn't convert anything into a Roth IRA. Now, as you'll see when we go through Secure, uh, they're forcing people to put their catch-up contributions, if they earn more than a certain amount of money, into Roths. So they are expanding Roths, not curtailing Roths. So that's just something to, to consider. No effect on backdoor Roths and no income limitations on Roths. But the big one, the big takeaway which means we should probably begin to rely or start thinking of the guidance that the IRS issued last year. Secure 2 does not address 
under the 10-year rule that Secure One brought into existence. That rule being, if you are a non-spouse beneficiary and you inherit an IRA from someone, how long can you keep that IRA open? And if you can't keep it open over your lifetime and you're forced to close it in 10 years, it's called the 10-year rule. Do you have to take required minimum distributions between year one and year nine, or can it sit there? We're going to get into it as we get deeper in uh, what the guidance is. The key to remember, folks, Secure 2 did not address that issue. 10-year rule remains. Non-spouse beneficiary who inherits an IRA will most likely have to close it within 10 years unless they're an eligible designated beneficiary. And in about 10, 15 minutes, we're going to get into what that means. But there is no guidance in Secure 2, Chris, on if you have to take money out between year one and nine. So the overriding consensus is you're going to have to continue with what the IRS released last October as their interpret, not last October, last August, I believe it was, as their interpretation of Secure One, because Secure Two never addressed it. That, to me, was the big takeaway. People were hoping, Chris, for some type of clarity. None was given. All right. We're going to go through many of the provisions of Secure, maybe not all of them. Uh, Ed did skip over many of the provisions that take effect well into the future. But just to give you an idea, folks, not all the provisions that you hear about have taken place. They aren't scheduled to take place till sometime in the future, meaning future Congresses can pass future laws that either expand upon these provisions, restrict them, or abolish them. So this, who knows what the future is going to bring when it comes to tax rules. I think you would agree with that, Chris? Yeah, I think so, too. That's uh, Unfortunately, they string us along for a very long period of time, a lot of times. IRS, the final say can take a shocking amount of time. Mm-hmm, exactly. They, they move at a snail's pace. All right, so the next thing the slot group did, and they walked us through, is, hey, here are the provisions, the dates, rather, over the next decade, and here's the provisions that take place. Rather than starting at the beginning, I'm going to start at the end. Let's go all the way out to 2033, which is the length of time, really, that Secure 2 covers And what provisions are scheduled to take place in 2033, 10 years from now? And that provision, I'm sure you know which one that is. Chris, do you want to take a gander of what provision doesn't take place, uh, take uh, effect rather, until January 1st of 2033? Um, Would that be when RMDs shift to 75? Perfect. Give yourself a ding, 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 or a clap, clap, clap. But yes, I get a clap. Oh, thank you. I had to do some quick math in my head to make sure that was the time frame we were looking at. But yeah, you know, even though Ed didn't cover this, folks, in in the presentation, an article was either in Fortune or the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The author did cover 
why this was put in there. I think I mentioned it on the show in the past. Do you have any idea, Chris, why uh, it doesn't take effect till age 75? Excuse me, till 2020, excuse me, 2033? Well, that's when the people turning 73 reach that, you know, the, it's based on year of birth. Now, are you asking me why they chose Nineteen no, no, sixty. That, that's totally. Yeah, don't even go down that rabbit hole. It's going to lead to a dead okay. end. That's one of that. Yeah. That's the the mouse trap that just ends with the actual trap. Okay. Why did Congress make the age seventy five? Why are they making you wait ten years? Why didn't they just make it available? Boom, right away. They they went from seventy two to seventy three. Why not just go from seventy two to seventy five? Because that's ultimately well, where they wanted to take it. Because with why the, does it take effect in ten years? Because of the with the budgetary time horizon that they have to use, yep. that yep. delay is going to leave them two years of no, you know, less in uh, of uh, income tax revenue, which they have to push out past the current budget time horizon. Yep. In short, in English, folks. Mm-hmm. The CBO, when they price all of these laws that Congress passes, they have to price it out over the coming, quote unquote, cost over the coming decade. If they let people delay RMDs to 75 right away, this would have been deemed too expensive of a bill and it either wouldn't have passed or they would have had to have come up with other means to uh, offset the quote-unquote cost. In other words, they would have had to pass tax increases somewhere. Because when you are allowed to defer your money longer, that means the government, even though the I in IRA stands for individual, we all know, Chris, every single human in America who has an IRA has a joint account, correct? Right. With their uncle. Right. Your uncle, your uncle, not your uncle Ben, not your uncle Bill, not your uncle Jimmy, your uncle Sam. And he wants his money. And if he had to wait till everyone turned 75, he would be getting a hell of a lot less money right now. And this would make the bill far too expensive to have ever passed. They had to go through the 10-year scoring of the CBO. Hence, it takes effect January of 2033, pushing it out past the 10 years so that age reduction and lost income, because everybody who is going to be 73, 74, right up to age 75, uh, is no longer going to have to take RMDs. They wanted to push that out to 2033. I found that article very, very interesting on that's why they did it. Um, And they didn't just make it... eh, 75 right away. Clearly, that's their point. They wanted to go to 75 right away. They just can't from a budgetary standpoint. Okay, effective in 2027, and this is not going to, I don't think, impact anyone listening to this show. Certain very low income people will be able to get a savers match uh, into their 401k or their IRA up to $2,000 or 50% of their IRA contributions. Um, That expansion of the savers match doesn't take effect until 2027. 2026, ABLE accounts. We're not going to get deep into them, folks, but ABLE accounts. If you have a disabled child, you most likely have heard of ABLE accounts. ABLE accounts are going to be expanded to people up to the age of 46 rather than having to be disabled before age 26 
in order to benefit from ABLE accounts. They're going to push it to 46. Now, why they're making people, Chris, wait three years for that? I'm guessing also it has something to do with with budgetary constraints. I can't see any reason why they're making the disabled wait three more years. Can you? I would think so. Otherwise, that's the type of thing that you would think from common sense would be put into effect immediately if they decided they wanted to do that. So, Yeah, I have no idea why they're making people wait. 2025, and this one is getting a lot of press, but it doesn't take effect, folks, for two more years. The higher catch-up limits for people between age 60 and 63 for retirement plans and simple plans. Why they're making them wait until 2025, no idea. But you'll start to see that there's going to be the catch-up contributions for people 50 and over, and then a special catch-up contribution for people between 60 and 63, which is four years. You had Ed walked it out to us, all of age 60, all of age 61, all of age 62, and all of age 63. So it's actually four years, even though 60 to 63 looks like three years. But that doesn't take effect until 2025. It's a pretty beefy catch-up that you can do on top of everything. So it's, it's, it's a nice thing why they're limiting it only to people that age. And why it's not taking effect until 2025, again, I'm guessing budgetary reasons to make the CBO scoring on this look reasonable. Mm -hmm. A lot of benefits that we'll review in the upcoming shows don't take effect until 2024, though, folks. And that will be indexing IRA catch-up contributions to inflation which is something that is not done automatically. So they will be indexed to inflation. Same thing with the QCDs, which to me, Chris, is definitely a handout to the either uber wealthy, and I don't think they meant it that way. I think they were just trying to be nice. But QCDs, Qualified Charitable Distributions, folks, anybody today over the age of 70 and a half can give from their IRA every single year as long as it goes directly to a charity, $100,000. And you do not have to pay taxes on it when the money's coming out and going to the charity as long as it goes directly to said charity. They're going to begin indexing that $100,000 for inflation. I don't know how many people out there do $100,000 annual QCDs, but those few people uh, will be able to index that $100,000 for inflation. The new 10% penalty exceptions, which we will get into on upcoming shows, they don't take effect until 2024. So keep that in mind. Uh, Higher deferral limits for simple plans, Chris, which our firm offers a simple plan, doesn't take effect until 2024. The biggie that everyone reads about and sounds wonderful, but when you hear the gotchas when we go over this in upcoming shows, you're going to see it's not quite as wonderful as you thought. The 529 to Roth conversion slash IRA rollover, whichever way you want to look at it, doesn't take effect until 2024. That one gets the most press, I think you would agree, Chris, mm-hmm. of, of neat things that Secure 2 has brought about. Uh, do you agree? 
it certainly get catches some headlines and some attention when it's when it's mentioned. Yes, right, exactly. We'll have to see moving forward how practical it becomes. Uh, beginning in twenty twenty four, no longer will four hundred one ks inherited by a non spouse beneficiary be subject to required minimum distributions. You and I could never understand why they had this rule in place in the first place, could we? It was a little odd. I think it was just kind of a legacy thing that was written into the code, and it just never got cleaned up when they started doing all these Roth versions, because to have RMDs on Roth 401ks but not on Roth IRAs just seemed seemed like a slap in the face of the 401k community <laughs> and saying, well, unless you're dumb, you're going to roll this thing out into a Roth IRA so you have more control over your life and you don't face RMDs. So um, I'm glad this is getting cleaned up finally. It's taken them long enough. Right. And I think I said inherited Roth. I apologize if I do. I meant, I meant your Roth. Roth. That's what, yeah. excuse me, your Roth 401k. That's what made this so odd. Prior to secure two. If you are over the age, well, now it's 70 and a half, and then it was 72 under Secure One. Now it's 73. But if you had reached required minimum distribution age and you had a Roth 401k, you were forced to take RMDs. Even though they're tax-free, you're going to be forced to take it. Mm-hmm. Beginning next year, they got rid of it. But if you fall into that category this year, folks, it's only 2023. You got to take your RMD from your 401k if you are over the age of 73 and subject to RMDs. You've got to take the 2023 one before it goes away in 2024. Just one of the bizarre rules on Roth 401ks that we could never quite understand. Okay, one that a lot of people, someone has already written to me about this. And I think many of our listeners will have a beef with beginning next year. If you are over the age of 50 and again, eventually over the age of 60, beginning in 2025, and you are going to do catch up contributions. Catch up contributions into your employer's 401k must be made to a Roth if your wages are greater than $145,000. And the key word there, folks, is wages, as you'll see on a future show when I dive into this a little bit deeper. This is going to impact self-employed people in a unique way. But anyways, if your wages are greater than $145,000, Your catch-up contribution must be made to a Roth. That's going to impact a lot of people, Chris, because a lot of people, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, are still at peak earnings and can benefit by putting more money into a 401k now while they're in peak earnings and do conversion strategies later in retirement when they're in their tax planning window. That window is going to be slammed shut on those people at least For their catch-up contributions, they are not yet forcing people who earn more than a certain amount of money to contribute just to the Roth part of retirement savings. But don't be too surprised if that doesn't come into the future. Nobody went over that. That wouldn't even come up in the Ed Slot talk. 
It's just in my mind, Chris, this is kind of getting people comfortable. It's, oh, yeah, okay, you're, you're earning more than this amount. Your catch-up has to go into a Roth. It's not too far of a stretch to eventually say anybody who's subject to that, all your money has to go into the Roth. It wouldn't surprise me if you see that. Why? They can tax it at very high rates. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think so. And that 145 wages limit is going to be affecting a whole lot of people that would otherwise be doing big deferrals towards the end of their careers. So this one's going to be quite impactful. It will. It's a revenue raiser. This, yeah, this pot sure. is a revenue raiser, folks. This yeah. isn't a benefit. This is a revenue raiser. And it, again, gets under the radar. But I think it's, it's like a cancer, and, and I hate using that analogy because nobody ever wants to hear that word, but like a cancer, it gets in there and festers and eventually could expand, expand, expand. And I think that's what they have it in there for. And it would not surprise me in the future if they force people who earn a certain amount of money to put all of their retirement savings in a Roth. Yep. Again, they're very short-term thinkers, folks, and they're just looking at raising revenue now. They'll let a future Congress 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now, after they're long retired or even long dead, let them deal with trillions and trillions of dollars of tax-free money inside a Roth. They just want tax revenue now. And there's no better way of getting it than forcing uh, people who um, could put some money in a tax-deferred account and then convert it to a Roth later in retirement at much lower brackets, forcing them if you want a Roth to, even if you don't want a Roth in the future, in my opinion, if you want any type of savings, forcing them to put it in a Roth at much higher tax brackets. Again, that's the cynic in me saying that, but that's just my my take. Mm -hmm. and, and I generally think you agree with that, Chris. I'm not sure. Yeah, generally. Okay. Yep. So those are some that take effect in 2024. Everything else takes effect now and we'll start going through those. Okay, so anyways, I just thought that was a good little thing to give people an idea of what takes effect now, what takes effect in the future, and what's coming. Okay, the final thing that the group did with us before they dived into actual SECURE Act is to make sure we had a good understanding, and I'm pretty sure everyone in that room, and, and I've been saying for, for a while there were 400 plus of us. Uh, there are 498 of us. They gave us the, the official breakdown. 498 Ed Slot members, at least as of last week. Um, I don't know if anyone new joined or if anybody new quit. But one of the things they drilled into the heads of all nearly 500 of us is to make sure we have a good understanding, whether we're talking Secure 1 or Secure 2, about the three different types of beneficiaries of inherited IRAs because some of the provisions, especially the RMD provisions of Secure 1 slash Secure 2, you have to have an understanding of the three different types of beneficiaries. And I think that was a good way of approaching this. So Chris, if you don't mind, I think we'll give a brief description again of the three different types of beneficiaries and when they come into play. You, you okay yeah, with that? I think that's a good idea that? because it's once you understand those three, this becomes much easier to remember and apply and figure out. Uh, if you don't, if you can't clearly identify what type of beneficiary is in question, 
than uh, good luck trying to interpret the RMG rules for that uh, that entity. Okay. All righty. And this applies to pretty much all types of plans, traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, 457 plans, and effective as of the end of 2021, uh, the government's own TSP plan. And I say effective in 2021, everybody else had to apply these rules January 1st of 2020. Government employees participating in the TSP plan, they had two years to prep for it. And don't get me going on this, Chris. You know this one ticks me off to high heaven. Mm-hmm. The Many, many people did not have a chance to update their estate plans, update their beneficiary designations, make any type of changes to their trusts. The government just jammed Secure One through in late, late 2019 and pretty much gave people one or two weeks notice. I forget how much they had. It wasn't much time at all, a couple weeks max, that, hey, this is coming. Except they said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Except for the TSP plan, our retirement plan. And the thing that ticks me off the most about it, folks, they admitted the reason why. They wanted their employees to be able to plan for it, and they said the TSP needs to get ready for it. So they gave the government's plan two years to get ready for the change and two years for their employees to get ready for the change, but they gave everybody else a couple of weeks. That ticks me off to this day. And I'm sorry, if you're out there and you're a government employee, I'm sorry. You, it, it does bother me that they gave special treatment to them and to the TSP plan, but not to private employees and private employer plans. Did I make that clear, Chris? Totally. Crystal. <laughs> okay. So there are three main types of beneficiaries now. Prior to secure one Essentially, pretty much everybody who died prior to December 31st, 2019, these were different. So if you're listening to older shows of ours or have listened to older shows and now you're listening to this one, uh, if it came out prior to January 1st of 2020, we would have been talking in different terms. This is applying for everyone or at least the rules as we know them post-Secure 1 or post-January 1st, 2020. The three main types of beneficiaries are called non-designated beneficiaries, non-eligible designated beneficiaries, and eligible designated beneficiaries. These are not my words, folks. This is what Congress did for you. And of course, Chris, they are so close in sounding, it's easy to get confused with them. Yeah. No, I've tried to make it easy, and I tried to make it easy by changing the word designated beneficiary to what, Chris? Human. Human, yes. You don't have to say it like Chris says it, human. Uh, You can say human or man or woman or people, but I prefer humans. So wherever you see the word designated beneficiary... Substitute the word human. And then you'll notice, Chris, the government used the word eligible in two of the descriptions. What are the humans eligible for? What are they talking about eligible? Eligibility for what? 
to still do some form of the stretch IRA. Exactly. A lot of people say Secure One, the first Secure Act that came out uh, in 2020. God, it was a year ago. No, 2020. Well, late 2019, January 1st of 2020. A lot of people say Secure One killed the stretch. It did not. It just greatly restricted the people who could use it. But for people who can use it, the stretch rules are alive and well. So that's why they say non-eligible and eligible. So let's just back up now, Chris, and put the word human in and explain a little what we're talking about. So the first type of beneficiary I mentioned, folks, was a non designated beneficiary or a non-human. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, Chris, but do you want to let our listeners know what a non-human beneficiary might be? Well, anything that's not a human, but to give you some ideas, (laughs) things like uh, trusts that are not allowed to be treated like a human, um, plants and animals, trees, rocks, inanimate objects, while your estate and charity too estate yep charities now you're not going to leave it to a tree but technically there's nothing barring you from doing so um so yeah any any non-human but those are the classic ones trusts benef- uh, estates and charities i think are the typical three that you'd find in this category yeah but many people do leave iras to dogs there's Nothing in the law. Chris is correct. I jokingly said on this podcast many, many times, that's probably why he mentioned trees. You could leave your IRA to your oak tree in your backyard. Perfectly legal. The rules of what that oak tree is going to do with it, well, that's a little bit varied. Not, not totally varied. That's a bad choice, but quite limited. Your oak tree is not going to be. Imagine if the oak tree could stretch it out over their life expectancy. Oh, goodness. That could go for a very long time. Oak trees can live a long time. (laughs) But non-designated beneficiary, folks, just simply means non-human. The word eligible is not in the definition of this class of beneficiaries, just the word non, non non-human. It would have been so much easier if Congress or the IRS would have just used the word human instead of designated beneficiary, but they have to sound so technical or legal or or whatever. I don't know, but non-human. And simply put, they are not people. Now, the big thing to know with non-humans is what happens to the IRA when the IRA owner dies. And that's key. And it's going to be based on one simple thing. How old was the IRA owner when they died? Did they die before or after what the industry, well, not the industry, but what the IRS and Congress calls their required beginning date? Simply put in English, the age when required minimum distributions must begin. 
and the required beginning date is April 1st of the year following that age. They don't key it off of the actual age, Chris, do they? They don't say everybody uh, April 1st of the year following the year you turn 70 and a half or 72 or 73. They don't give that actual RMD age. They just say the required beginning date is April 1st of the year following the age that you're supposed to begin required minimum distributions. So that just happens to fall on Chris's birthday, correct? That's true. That's how I remember it. April 1st, Chris's birthday. Mm -hmm. So today, the required beginning date is 73. So if you own an IRA and you named your oak tree or a trust or a charity or your estate or your dog as beneficiary of your IRA and you die before April 1st of the year following the year you turned 73, if you die before that age, the payout is fairly straightforward. There's no stretch. There's no 10-year rule. It reverts back to the old five-year rule Mm -hmm. that used to be around in in vogue and, and in force over 25 years ago now, 23 years ago, technically, but a very, very long time ago, the five-year rule was a lot more common than it is today. But the five-year rule is different as well, folks. The five-year rule says no required minimum distributions between year one and four. The tree, the dog, the church, the charity, the trust that doesn't qualify as a beneficiary of an IRA, let's make that perfectly clear. Some trusts will qualify as beneficiaries. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about trusts that don't qualify to be beneficiaries of IRAs. All of those fall under the five-year rule if the IRA owner died before April 1st of the year following the year they turned or reached required minimum distribution age. And that five-year rule just says, close it within five years. You're not going to be required to take anything out at all during that five-year period, but just make sure it's closed by December 31st of the fifth year. Is that fairly straightforward? That one is pretty straightforward. Okay. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing. Under the non-human or non-designated beneficiary category, folks. If the owner dies after their required beginning date, you have to use what the industry calls, and I'm not sure if the IRS calls it this or Congress. I think the industry gave it this nickname. But you have to use what is called the ghost life expectancy. Only non-human beneficiaries have to do this. The trust the, the, the trust that doesn't qualify, an estate, a charity. Now the charity, even though they could use the ghost life expectancy, which I'll explain in a minute, they're not. They're just going to say, give us our money. Charities want the money and they can take IRAs tax-free. 
So there's no benefit for them using a quote unquote ghost life expectancy. So if you name a charity as beneficiary, even though they could follow these ghost life expectancy rules, they're not going to. They're just going to say, give me my money. But the ghost life expectancy simply says, Chris, you must use the single life table for the remaining life expectancy of the IRA owner. So you don't use the five-year rule. You don't even use the 10-year rule. You look at the age of the IRA owner in the year they passed away. And you start taking out your distributions based on their remaining life expectancy. So if someone passed away before their required beginning date, which say is 72, they die at 72. The single life table says they have a life expectancy of 17.2 years. So that would be the initial divisor and you reduce that by one every year. So a non-human Chris can maybe not be able to stretch it for the rest of their life, but they can stretch it longer than 10 years, can they not? Potentially. Mm -hmm. Just all depends on the age of the decedent. Exactly. 81 is the key. At 81, the remaining life expectancy is 10.5. At 82, it's 9.9. So technically, if somebody dies between 81 or 82, it, the ghost life expectancy pretty much mimics the 10-year rule at that point. And then if they die at 83, 84, 85, the, it gets as low as nine years and then eight years and then seven, six, five, four, three. So you can see if someone dies well into their mid to late 80s or 90s under the ghost life expectancy, uh, you'll have to close it in some instances in less than five years under the five-year stretch. That could be lost. But definitely after age 81, 82, uh, the 10-year rule uh, is more favorable than the ghost life expectancy. But for someone who passes away prior to age 73, the ghost life expectancy could be as long as 17. And that's that's pretty good. What do you think? I think it is. Well, it depends on your tax circumstances, right? It's uh, But having True. that flexibility. And always remember, even though there's a required distribution, that's the minimum. You can always take out more. So it's not restricting you from taking out more if it makes more sense in your tax situation. But... Um, just no less than that number. So the, that's why RMDs being zero, like not having an RMD yet, grants you the greatest flexibility because you can totally choose to distribute or not to recognize income or not in any given year when you don't have it. So the RMDs being smaller compared to larger gives you relatively more of that flexibility to control your own tax destiny. Won't make a difference for some people. Right, their their tax situation doesn't lead them to have any particular strategies that that's going to appear to limit their taxes. But um, I always prefer more flexibility than less. Right, I like to be able to decide on my own what I'm doing uh, rather than be forced to do certain things. Uh, just because it increases the chances you're being forced to do something that's ultimately harmful to you that you'd otherwise like to avoid. So, 
my preferences from a you know a lower RMD compared to higher is better. Okay, and I want to clarify because as Chris was talking, I started thinking again in my head, and and I think I might have. You usually correct me, or you I, try to I, correct yeah, me. Yeah, I was about to get to that it, when you asked yeah, me the question. Perfect. It's on or after. The 72 was given as an example, that's 17. But if you were born at 73 or after, that's where you can start using the ghost life expectancy. Because remember, at 73, if it was a human, that's when they would have had to start to use their life expectancy. That's where RMDs would have been. So if a human dies and leaves it to a non-human, but it is after the um, age at which the IRA owner would have reached 73 or beyond, you can use their remaining life expectancy because the inheritor is a non-human. They don't have a life expectancy. So they call it the ghost because the person is dead and you're using their ghost life expectancy. So that's, I, I think I might have misspoke briefly there. The 17.2 at age 72 is to give you an example. One year later, 73, when the RMDs begin at 16.4. If they pass away at 75, it's 14. If they pass away at 80, it's 11.2. If they pass away at 82, it's 9.9. So the non-human beneficiary uses the remaining life expectancy of the ghost. Okay, I might not have made that perfectly clear as you were talking. I was thinking, did I misspeak again and not explain this? Were you picking up on that? Yeah, I think you, I think you clarified it because you were giving an example of using the ghost life expectancy for someone who died when they were only 72. Right, and that wouldn't work. Right. Exactly. Okay. If they died at 72 and they have a non-designated beneficiary, a non-human, five-year rule. Just keep that in mind, folks. Right. Prior to RMDs or required beginning date, five-year rule if a non-human is named as beneficiary. Someone had asked Ed during this whole discussion here at this pot, folks, and Chris, because you weren't there. And they were very intrigued by this because they fixated on the fact that between 73 and 80, I don't really want to say 81 because at 81, the, the remaining life is 10.5 instead of 10. But between 73 and 80, you can get a longer quote unquote stretch. So they were wondering if it would be beneficial to purposefully name and create a trust that would not qualify as beneficiary of an IRA rather than create a trust that would qualify as beneficiary of an IRA and name it on your IRA beneficiary form. If you name a correct trust and you die between 73 and 80, your beneficiaries have to close it within 10 years. But if you purposely create a bad trust and name it as beneficiary of your IRA and die anywhere between 73 and 80, your beneficiaries, in this case, the trust, 
which would receive the distributions on behalf of your human beneficiaries named in the trust would have longer to stretch it out. Mm -hmm. And then the theory she proposed was after age 81, I would say after age 80, if you were going to try anything like this, and I don't recommend it, you change point was you change the trust back to a trust that does qualify in an effort for that seven year period to lock in a longer stretch. What do you think Ed said to that? I think he said that was a lot of complexity and dealing with things on a legal fee standpoint that might undermine benefits uh, to that. Exactly. You, You hit the nail on the head. It it's it's fraught with the ability for things to go wrong. True. Yep. During that whole time phrase, to purpose. But I I understand what she was getting at, and and I liked her train of thought. Mm-hmm. And I will admit, folks, when I first learned this back in in uh, two thousand uh, twenty twenty, not two thousand twenty twenty, I was thinking the same thing that my God, we purposely create a trust that isn't going to qualify as a human beneficiary for RMD purposes. Now, under this new rule, you could theoretically get a stretch for seven years longer than the 10-year. But I quickly also thought in my head, no, that's just going to be too difficult to remember to switch it around and things could go wrong. um, Anyways, it's an intriguing thought, and I'm sure sure there are listeners here now who have been thinking this because, you know, a lot of our listeners love to scheme like this. Mm -hmm. You are correct, though, if any of you are thinking that. You purposefully create a trust that you know will not qualify as a see-through trust or look-through trust. It goes by either term. And that just is the verbiage given to a trust that would qualify to be a beneficiary of an IRA. If it qualifies as a see-through or look-through trust, it can be treated as a human, even though it is a non-human. You purposefully create a trust that fails that test, Chris. You have a non-human. And that trust might get longer than the 10-year stretch, which is what a acceptable see-through or look-through trust will get. You might be able to get that trust 17 years or 16 or 15 or 14 or 13 years. We can see a little bit longer, but rife with complexity and added cost because you're going to have to change it. And just if you're thinking it, it can be done, but it's one of those things that I would put in the category of why bother. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's that's just a mess waiting to happen. Not that you couldn't maybe pull it off, but you're trusting that a lot of things go right and a lot of people remember this and that the follow-up is done and there's not an overburden of cost in redoing trusts or changing beneficiaries and things like that. I just think you'd have to make a pretty compelling case for some type of tax savings that would overcome all of those warning signs that I see. Yep. Okay. But it was neat to see someone else thinking like that. That's, that's a lot of the, the, the brain thoughts that, that go through everyone's heads. Okay. We're going to wrap this up real quickly, but two more other types of beneficiaries, non-eligible designated beneficiaries. So let's just pause again, folks, change designated beneficiary to human. Non-eligible humans. Mm-hmm. What are these humans not eligible for, Chris? They are not eligible to stretch, so they get sucked into the 10-year rule. Exactly. And secure two 
made no changes, essentially, to this. The 10-year rule still applies. But as we also said, Secure 2 did not address the ambiguity. So you should now go by what the IRS announced in August of last year. And that is, if you are a non-eligible human, or a human is not a human who is not eligible to stretch, if the owner of the IRA died before their required beginning date, which right now would essentially be April 1st of the year following the year they turned 73, if they die before that April 1st period, no required minimum distributions during the first nine years. Just make sure by the end of the 10th year, the IRA is empty. Does not mean you can't take anything out between year one and nine. They're just not going to force you to take anything out. If someone dies after April 1st of the year, following the year they turn age 73, you are subject to the 10-year rule. So I guess well, even though... They, not only that, you have to take RMDs. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Chris is right. Not only are you subject to the 10-year rule, you must take RMDs during the first 10 years. And, and then here again, to, to follow the train of thought, folks, I remember as Ed was going, actually was one of Ed's consultants going over this, but then Ed chimed in. As this was being discussed on the non-spouse beneficiary, and what the question was, and this is a good question because a lot of people think of this, the IRS said their justification for making this rule was the at least as rapidly, ALAR, we talked about this before, which is actually in the tax code from what I've been told, although I haven't actually seen it quoted, at least as rapidly. And the IRS is saying, hey, the person who died was taking RMDs. You must continue RMDs because this account needs to be debited at least as rapidly. And then somebody pointed out and asked Chris, can you see where this person's mind is going? My, my mind goes per- the same place because using the RMD life expectancy for the, in, for the beneficiary is not as rapidly as the older person who died is taking the RMDs, or maybe that's just my brain thinking that, and this person was thinking something else. But I, it's, no, no, it's, you, you're spot on, yeah. and it's the same thing that I thought of when I even heard the concept of ALAR, because ALAR is how the IRS defended this rule, and Secure Two, as Ed pointed out, does not address this at all. So IRS guidance, which is based on ALAR, applies. And according to the IRS, human, non-eligible humans, non-eligible to stretch, who inherit an IRA from someone who died after their required beginning date, already were subject to RMDs. And the IRS wants that IRA to be closed at least as rapidly. But they also came out and said you use the single life expectancy table, not for the dead guy who could be older and have much larger RMDs. You use the single life expectancy table for the age of the person who inherited it. 
who could be, Chris, substantially younger and therefore much smaller RMDs. And someone asked this and Ed chimed in and Ed pretty much said, in essence, the IRS isn't looking at dollar amounts. They're looking at years. Mm. It does make me wonder, though, what if somebody very, very old who has a very short life expectancy of less than 10 years? It, it just it opens up a little can of worms on their thinking. Mm-hmm. I would have thought the IRS would have came out and made you use the age of the decedent to keep it at least as rapidly. Yeah. But they don't. So don't get that into your heads, folks, that you use the life expectancy of the decedent. You use your life expectancy, even if you are younger than the decedent. And that means for the next nine years, in the eyes of the IRS, at least, no pun intended, at least some money is coming out of the IRA, I guess is the way the IRS looked at it, Chris. Okay, the final one, and we're not going to get deep into this at all, folks, but this is just eligible designated beneficiaries or eligible humans. What are they eligible for, Chris? To stretch. To stretch. At least some version of the stretch. But pretty much the way it used to work years years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, prior to December 31st of 2019, those rules way, 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 way back three years ago, those old stretch rules apply. Yeah, but and there's one old- one small group that a lot of people are interested in that – they get to play by the old rules for a time period, but then they get thrust into the 10-year. That's what I mean by a version of the stretch. Yes. And once they die, the stretch dies with them. Under the old rules, way, way back three years ago, if someone died and their remaining life expectancy was 58 years, say, which was possible, easily possible, and they died eight years into it, and there was 50 years of stretch remaining, someone else would step in their shoe as successor beneficiary and continue stretching over 50 years. Under the new rules, if you are an eligible human to stretch, so in other words, you are the surviving spouse, you're a minor child who's younger than 21, you're disabled, you're chronically ill, or if you are someone who's not more than 10 years younger, or put another way, you you are... or Put another way, you are someone who's definitely older than the decedent or not more than 10 years younger. You can stretch. And even if you have 58 years remaining and you die eight years into the stretch, whoever steps into your shoes as successor beneficiary, they have to go straight to the 10-year rule. So it's a little bit restrictive, not quite the way it used to be, but you are eligible to stretch. Okay. Just wanted to go through that on this first intro to Secure Act 2. We're then going to spend, I think, Chris, the next probably three EDU shows on getting into a lot of the different elements and parts of Secure and how they work. Um, We didn't get into everything. He freely admitted things that don't take effect till well into the future or things that need specific IRS guidance and no guidance has been given. He did not get into it. He only wanted to cover things that they felt fairly comfortable, Chris, is the way that they're going to work. 
and then everything else, we're just going to have to wait. So we'll spend the next probably three EDU shows. If I can wrap it up in two, I'll try. Getting into a lot of the known provisions of SECURE and how they work. And as we said before, if you have any questions on SECURE, uh, don't hesitate to send us an email or Chris will explain to you how to reach me. Just put in the subject line a secure question or something like that, uh, because we might dedicate a couple of our upcoming Q&A shows specifically to secure questions as well. Yeah, that's okay. a good idea. Since we're going to be insecure for a little bit, anybody has related questions, now would be the time to send them in. Best way to do that is send them in to Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email that's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And uh, he gets a lot of emails, so make sure in the subject line, like he recommended, put Secure Act question or something to, to uh, along those lines. And, um, you know, we're not going to necessarily turn the EDU shows into, into Q&As, but if there are specific questions you have, we'll make sure we do our best to, if there is enough guidance out there and, and the rule has been set, give you some feedback on those questions there's going to be several i bet come up that we will just have to punt and say well we're waiting we're all waiting we're waiting for the irs to chime in to clarify how they're going to handle that particular situation but um yeah that's uh great one thing i didn't ask you and i guess so everybody knows i'll learn at the same time uh are you available to the q do the q a show in a few days uh, Friday, uh, that would yeah. be a big fat negative. So you'll have to do a social security one. So okay. uh, the Q and a on secure won't take place till the following Friday. I'll still yeah. be in my, uh, class. Okay. Uh, for, so there'll for, be some uh, kind of Q and a show, um, solo, unless we, unless something comes up and maybe there's questions on LTC or something we could, I could bring Greg in or something like that, but we'll, we'll between Jim and I, we'll come up with a slew of questions that we can go over on Friday which then will be released on Saturday, as we always do on the Q&A show. So watch for that. Uh, if you have any burning Social Security questions, now would be the time to rush them in so that I can see them before we record the Q&A show again in a few days here. So if you've got something you want to try to slip in, why don't you shoot that over as soon as you listen to this podcast, assuming it's before May 5th, because that'll be when the next Q&A show will be recorded. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jim, for joining me from your Mother's basement or no, spare, it's my mother's spare main, rooms. It's my, it's my, my old bedroom. It's, it's here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone take care and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 